conversations. Greetings and welcome to another episode. Lucky you getting treated pretty quite soon after our last one. How unpredictable is it though? Uh, to another episode of Med Conversations with me, Rahul Hulsiboy Muthalali, and this guy. Little Scotus. Little Scotus. Uh, so first some housekeeping. Um, so we look at the podcast here you may have noticed that the sound quality isn't perhaps studio quality and we actually are limited on the amount of podcasts we can put out every month because we are we cannot afford to buy a better subscription server which only allows us to upload a certain amount every month so we were thinking about or have started a little patreon page which we're going to put on the facebook page Um, the intention is really just to increase the infrastructure we have to make the podcast so microphones uh, website hosting that sort of thing so we can make more and better quality podcasts and money will only go back into the podcast so we know most of you probably won't donate and that's not a problem at all we are just doing this in case anyone feels a particular generous bone in their body and wants to help us create a better yeah, service for you guys we love it really sick of the sound quality well yeah that, that as well <laughs> after five years <laughs> we still have no almost no idea what we're doing with yeah the still, sound, the still trying to work out how to press record on yeah. the computer <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so we'll put the link on the facebook page and if you know even if you gave like 50 cents that would be super appreciated super appreciated mm. so it's to, like a magpie Rahul really likes silver coins yeah. <laughs> gets him all excited don't wanting to write podcasts gets him in the mood don't leave your loose change around me i will <laughs> beck your brains out um so today we are going to start with something that has been requested a lot through the Facebook page, and it's always been a bit daunting and we haven't done because it seems really complex, but we've tried to simplify it for you and hopefully succeeded in doing that. So the topic we're going to be doing today is glomerulonephritis. It's going to be a two-part podcast. This one is going to have some general glomerulonephritis stuff, and then at the end we're going to do the nephrotic syndromes, and then we're going to do a second podcast we think will be nephritic syndromes, so that, that'll be the layout today. So I'll just take you through the structure here. As I said, we're going to start with some general glomerulonephritis knowledge. So that'll include an introduction explanation about GNs and what they are and why they're so confusing. A refresher on some glomerular slash nephron anatomy and physiology, which is probably necessary to understand the rest of it. Uh, GN pathophysiology and then GN patho, pa- uh, patient presentations. And then a quick explanation of the nephrotic and nephritic syndromes. The general workup you do for anyone with a suspected GN, and then the general treatment principles, and so that'll be the general glomerulonephritis knowledge, and then we'll move into some nephrotic syndrome examples and explanations. Yeah, so it's going to be like at the start, there's a bit of heavy science content for the first part, but if you're going to hang in there, then we'll get into the cases a bit later, unlike our usual structure. Yeah, where it's chaotic, um, serious, so, asking for money. It's just yeah, it's not <laughs> it's going to a, be fun. It's just a new brand down. of med conversations. Yeah. Um, so let's start with an introduction. So. Glomerulonephritis has to be one of the most uh, confusing things as a medical student, as a junior doctor. I've just done a renal registrar term, so it minorly cleared things up for me, but I can't say I was ever confident even then. Um, mm, it's but, pretty cloudy. Yeah. yeah. So let me teach you about them. <laughs> um, no, but uh, glomerulonephritis refers to diseases. I think the best way to think about it is actually glomerular diseases, as opposed to what you might think, which is glomeruloinflammation. It's just any glomerular disease. And that's as opposed to things like acute tubular necrosis, which affects the tubules, or obstructive uropathy, which is where you get a blockage in your renal tract, which happens further down. It's just diseases that are affecting the glomeruli. And as we'll talk about later, remember glomerules are that part of the nephron where you have like the the filtration occurs. Yeah, and we'll go into the anatomy a bit later. So it's the tuft of blood vessels that are encapsulated in that Bowman's capsule uh, at the start of a nephron. So I think it's partially confusing because it's a case of these old definitions which have stuck from an era when people didn't have all the fancy testing that we had today. So we've got these, you know, largely pathological categories of what kidneys look like under a microscope. And then they're kind of 
extending to all these diseases and then some don't fit the boxes and then there's even cases where microscope technology has gotten better but we've stuck with the old microscope name so it's incredibly confusing so Mm, we'll try and decode some of that for you so the presentation of gn varies massively depending on what type of gn it is but we've broadly used these categories nephrotic syndrome and nephritic syndrome right that's kind of what we learn in med school and the reason for that is I think they kind of help you clarify a diagnosis underlying that, but there's a lot of crossover. Yeah. So remember, nephro- nephritic syndrome, you're thinking blood, you're thinking hypertension, nephrotic syndrome, you're thinking losing all your protein, edema, hypercholesterolemia, mm. two vague kind of clinical syndromes, we'll the classical syndromes. Yep. But a lot of people can present with GN outside of those two syndromes as well. So they could just present as someone who has chronic kidney disease. So maybe it's been burnt out, been going for a while, now they've just got chronic kidney disease or just isolated blood in their urine, or just AKI without any of the other features. So it's not a total, you know, not everyone falls cleanly into nephrotic syndrome and nephritic syndrome. So just to rehash, so glomerular nephritis, glomerules affects the glomerules. I can barely say that word. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to give up. Glomerular nephritis, but it's not just necessarily inflammation. It also describes other processes like infection or scarring that we'll talk about a bit later. Hmm. So now for the exciting bit, the anatomy and physiology refresher. Physiology. Oh, you're hang on just to give that, it to me, <laughs> So just some quick stuff. Both the kidneys have about 2 million, almost 2 million glomeruli, which sit in all, all of them sit in the Bowman space. And that's a space that's lined by epithelial cells. And those epithelial cells transition to become the nephron. So the tubules later on, it kind of smoothly transitions. So where do the, what, what, how do you work out where the glomerular capillaries come from? Yeah, so you'll hear about these afferent arterioles and efferent arterioles, right? So it's basically this kind of little capillary matrix or capillary bed where you've got all this blood that comes into this compressed space and then has to flow out. And there's a different pressure between the in and the out that causes this increase, the increased hydrostatic pressure that helps drive across, um, uh, filtrate across into the space that we'll talk about. But the easy way to remember which arteriole goes in and which one goes out is afferent arterial goes in and efferent arterial goes out because E for exit. Yeah. And you can also apply that to neurons. So, you know, you've got your motor neurons or your efferent neurons because they're exiting the the CNS and going to the peripheral parts. Yeah. Yeah, so I think of it like the brain. Uh, Scott thinks of it E for exit. It's probably a bit easier, but whatever is is easier for you. So you've got this arterial that comes in, forms all these capillaries, which are the glomerular capillaries, and then it goes out as an efferent arterial. And then around that, you've kind of got some interesting stuff. So you've got the the capillaries are all sitting in this mesangial matrix. Meso just means middle. So it's just the bit in the middle. And we'll talk about the layers later. But so they're all sitting in this sort of this, um, you know, this tissue called the mesangial matrix. And then around that, you've got these podocytes, a little set that means literally foot cells. And they're specialized cells that stick to the outsides of the capillaries with their feet. But between their feet, they leave some slits, which filtrate, again, filtrate from the blood, can come through, is filtered through. Mm. Um, so essentially, that leaves you with this you know, filtering system that goes from capillary into that Bowman space where the urine is, that has three layers. And it's important to think about those three layers. So what are the three layers, Scott? So the three layers are the endothelial cells of the capillaries that the blood has to go through first. And then you've got the glomerular basement membrane between the capillaries and the podocytes. And then you've got the, these podocyte foot process gaps. Yeah. And we'll get into it a bit more lately, uh, later. But remember, because the podocytes are kind of preventing all this kind of protein getting through. And when you've got damage to them, a lot of the um, 
nephrotic syndromes involve damage to those podocytes. Mm. In fact, all of these glomerulonephritis invariably damage one or multiple of these things, and that's what leads to essentially leaking of stuff that's normally meant to stay in your bloodstream into your kidneys. Whether that's blood or protein or whatever. Whatever it is, other bad stuff. That depends on where and how the damage is done. Mm. So in terms of the physiology, the point in normal physiology of all these complex layers is to filter plasma, i.e. blood without the cells, and create a filtrate, which then later on becomes the urine after the after the tubule and the nephron plays around with it a bit more. So it's your starting point. Um, so blood wants to go through. You want to keep all the good stuff as it goes into the afferent and out through the efferent, and you want to get rid of all the bad stuff to filter through to become the urine. Correct. And the stuff that like gets through is in the filter is sodium, potassium, small molecules, glucose, Whereas the stuff that stays in, Scott, what's the stuff you want to hang on to? It's a bit harder to produce. Mm, so bloods, um, proteins like albumin, immunoglobulins, all those kind of things shouldn't yeah. usually be in the urine. or they shouldn't Hemoglobin, be much red cells, white cells, those things, you want to hang on to them. They're yeah. pretty good things. You white like those cells, things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, sodium, whatever. Okay. So in understanding all of this physiology, there are two main forces, and this is probably a lot of renal physiology, and we'll refer to this later. But there's the hydrostatic force, which Scott briefly mentioned earlier, which is literally just the force exerted by the pressure. If you think about the force inside a hose on the outside of the hose, that's the hydrostatic force. Easy, simple. And the body can regulate that by, if you increase the amount of volume going in through the afferent artery and kind of narrow the artery going out, the um, efferent artery, you can increase the pressure or or reduce it. thumb on the hose, on the end of the hose. Like if you you go and listen to Davor's ACE inhibitor lecture, the renin angiotensin system. Is that the one he did by himself or did we never publish that one? I think we Um, we took that down because it was no good. (laughs) (laughs) I remember hearing one with Davor. He was talking about ACE inhibitors. Maybe it was was like nephrotoxics. Probably. Yeah. You can find something. If you're a true fan, shout out to us. Let us know where Davor did that. The other force, so that's the hydrostatic force. And the other force to consider is the oncotic force. And this is the force that's exerted by the molecules on either side of the membrane. This applies to anything. Um, But it's the force exerted by those molecules, the osmotic force that tries to draw water into that side. Osmosis. Um, Osmosis. That's how you learn medicine. Yeah, according to us. Um, So... Yeah, so that really is not as important here, but probably plays more of a role in the disease glomeruli and also in you know understanding edema and why that occurs in the nephrotic syndrome, and we'll talk about that later. But essentially, the force driving glomerular filtration is mostly hydrostatic force from inside the capillaries. You've got blood pressure pushing into the capillaries and pushing blood out there. And that's why you can get an AKI if you lose all of that pressure. So if you lose a bunch of blood or if you, lose, you become dehydrated or if you constrict your afferent arterial or and vasodilate your efferent arterial. You make it harder for the blood to get in or easier for the blood to get out. So that's just some quick physiology again. And I think one thing to remember is that the glomerular capillaries filter 120 to 180 liters per day of Mm. plasma water. Remember that. Remember that. They're just doing a lot of work. If you you like the podcast and roll, you will remember that. (laughs) It really would mean a lot to me. He'll be very happy if you tell him that. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you want to rehash from there, Scott? I think the main things are... The whole point of this is to filter. Yeah. I think we've kind of gone over it. Big things uh, you want to stick around and then the hydrostatic and the oncotic forces. Yeah. So let's talk about glomerular disease then. What, what happens when you get these problems? What what can cause a problem with your glomeruli, Scott? So as we kind of talked about before, there's all these different causes of glomerulonephritis. It's not just anitis where it's always infectious or inflammatory. So there's these, you know, there's classic inflammatory syndromes of glomerulonephritis that you hear a lot about. But then it can also be the cause of secondary disease, like in FSGS. It can be secondary to infection, infiltrative disease, or genetic 
genetic Causes. stuff, metabolic yeah. stuff, diabetes. It can be anything, really. And I think one of the main things to know about this is that once you have an initial insult, regardless of what it is, there are a few certain other factors that will always worsen it, whatever it is. So diabetes is always going to worsen your glomerulonephritis because hyperglycemia just messes with your glomeruli. Hypertension just causes an increased hydrostatic force and kind of destroys the glomeruli by wear and tear, more or less. And the other kind of big thing, I think, is about the role of tubular atrophy and interstitial fibrosis, Scott. Um, So do you know anything about that? I know a little bit about that. No, IFTA. 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 Interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy. So if you get this, you know, damage to the glomerules, you'll eventually have this kind of downstream um, effects where um, the whole nephron becomes inflamed, fibros and atrophies away, and um, you can lose a lot of function. And actually, regardless, again, regardless of what caused the initial glomerular problem, once your downstream areas... Uh, become fibros and atrophy. So once you get interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy, fibros, and I keep saying that scarred, because yeah, IFTA destroyed. is what they use, yeah. that is your marker of your chance of renal failure. So pretty much any, pick any glomerulonephritis, if you do a biopsy and they have, they actually give you an IFTA classification, IFTA grade. The mm. higher it is, that's that's what's going to tell you whether they're going to get into renal failure. What's your IFTA grade rule? My IFTA grade zero. I'm flying, dude. My <laughs> tubules and my interstitial are flying. GFR of 200. Yeah. Um, uh, and there's a number of mechanisms to explain why the downstream areas get damaged. I like to think a bit of like you have pollution upstream in a river. Downstream, eventually, there's going to be some damage. Um, and the idea is that you know some maybe these inflammatory proteins that are all being let through this leaky glomeruli are being uh, causing inflammation downstream. Maybe there's just blockages from all this big stuff that's going down the river and then blocking up the river downstream. Mm. And then there's some more advanced sort of sophisticated explanations. But that's not really important. The important thing is that it happens and it's a big problem and that's your marker. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably the most you need to know about IFTA. So let's move on to some patient presentations, how people present. So in med school, what are you taught, Scott? So you told about two classic presentations. So you've got your nephritic syndrome with an I and nephrotic with an O. But so as always, it's more complicated than that, as it seems to be the case in medicine. We start with heuristics, then we learn how the brutal real world works. And they can often just present with hematuria, blood in the urine, or protein urea, protein in the urine. I think the important thing to know about hematuria is that it's there's this thing called glomerular hematuria as opposed to just run-of-the-mill hematuria. And can you tell us what that is, Scott? Yeah, so if you see someone with blood in their urine, the, your first question is, is this blood just from their lower urinary tract or is it from the glomerules? And Scott, how do you tell if it is from the glomerules? If it's from the glomerules, <laughs> the blood should be dysmorphic or red blood cell cast. <laughs> so you'll hear red blood cell cast or you'll, you know, you might have someone ask you to do testing for dysmorphic red blood cells in the urine. And if they're just like typical red blood cells in the urine from the lower urinary tracts, you know, from the bladder or from the ureters or wherever, they should look normal. But these are specially shaped red blood cells that have been squeezed out from a damaged glomerules. Yeah, they look a bit like Mickey Mouse ears on, under the microscope. And it's because they've been forced through a damaged barrier, which still isn't quite big enough to let them through. And then they look like they've been cut up with razor wire. Um, it's an easy test to do, red mm-hmm. cell casts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing is protein urea. So small amounts of protein in the urine are normal and transient rises in protein are normal. But sustained protein, more than a gram over 24 hours, is usually due to a problem with glomerules. Um, but again, these things, patients, so the hematuria is normally microscopic. So patients don't normally know about that. And the protein urea, unless it's severe in the developing edema, 
they actually don't know about that either. Sometimes the prote- uh, their urine's more foamy, but that's about it. So you might hear the words frank hematuria as when you can just with your eyes see the change in color or microscopic hematuria as when, when you do the testing, you can see there's some red blood cells in there. But if you just look at the urine, it looks normal. And the majority of cases of glomerulonephritis don't have frank hematuria. There's a couple of exceptions to that. IgA nephropathy is probably the main one. Uh, and we'll talk about the nephritic syndrome podcast. But yeah, most of the time it is microscopic. But moving on to what we learn in med school the true test of all knowledge. Um, The nephritic and nephrotic syndrome. Scott, do you want to run me through what they are? Yeah, so nephritic syndrome with an I is your classic um, um, syndrome of glomerulonephritis. So that's when you've got significant, like kind of a hematuria predominant picture. You've got hematuria. um, You might have a bit of protein in the urine, but you've you've got hypertension and um, a rise in your serum creatinine. Yeah, so those are the four cardinal features. Some proteinuria, but not massive. Hematuria with glomerular red cells. Hypertension and a rise in your serum creatinine, or AKI. And there are different variations of this, and no, not everyone fits cleanly into these definitions. But um, you can have acute versions called rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis, and we'll talk about that later. It is important to know about that because that can result in end-stage renal failure and need for tra- um, dialysis within days to weeks. And we'll talk about that in the next podcast because it's probably more of a nephritic syndrome thing. And then you've got your nephrotic syndrome. And what's going on there, Scott? So nephrotic syndrome, O for protein. You've got really heavy proteinuria and all the secondary effects of that. So you're losing your protein. Your body's losing its hydrostatic pressure. You might get a lot of edema. Oncotic pressure. Sorry, you're right. (laughs) Oncotic pressure. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. Um, You you get a hyperalbuminemia on blood tests and um, edema around your body. Second to that, you might have heart failure. And then your body also, you actually get a hypercholesterolemia due to some form of upregulation there. And sometimes you can even have a normal GFR or creatinine in these nephrotic syndromes. Yeah. So it's, I've actually, the ones I've seen, a lot of the nephrotic syndromes have a fairly normal creatinine, but they're just really edematous. Like, and the classic sort of sign is when they have edema, puffiness of the eyes. So it's extending all the way up to the eyes. That's a sign for nephrotic syndrome. It's also known as anasarca or widespread edema. And just as an interest thing, the reason they develop high cholesterol is because their oncotic pressure goes down, as Scott mentioned before, and that's actually a driver for the liver to produce more cholesterol. So they get hypercholesterol email. Mm, I always is. thought that that was a bit of an unusual addition into the thing. Yeah, yeah. that is an interesting. <laughs> and interesting. Uh, so what's so, next, Scott? So let's let's get a bit practical. We've been talking a lot about science. You've got through the tough bit if you're still here, which is probably unlikely. But <laughs> let's imagine you're an ED reg or a GP and you're worried about glomerulonephritis. So let's talk about history, exam, and investigations and things and talk about the approach. So first, patient comes in. What, what are you thinking about in history, role? What do you want to ask them? So the history is actually quite difficult. As we said, a lot of these things are you can't. the patient doesn't know unless it's pretty severe. So really for this, there's a few symptoms to know about. Do they have edema? Do they have any obvious hematuria? Do they have any frothy urine? And have they had any systemic symptoms lately? Fevers, sweats, chills, weight loss. Uh, there's also symptoms of end-stage renal failure from urea, one of those products that the kidney clear is building up. And those, so that's called uremic symptoms. And they include drowsiness because it affects the brain, itchiness because it you know, affects your skin, and pericarditis and pleuritis because it causes inflammation of your sera. Mm. Check out the CKD podcast. Mm, yep. All in there. And I guess also symptoms, like other things worsened by renal failure, such as heart failure or other mm. things. But then really on these, when I'm doing history for GN, it's all about the past medical history. So do they have an obvious autoimmune disease? Do they have diabetes? Have they had any obvious 
past infections like HIV or hepatitis B, which are associated with a lot of these conditions? Do they have high blood pressure, which is a symptom of these conditions? And have they had any drugs or toxins um, or have they had cancer in the past or do they have heart disease? So it's really, it's going to depend on your cause, but those are the things you're going to be thinking about. And I think another thing that's really important on the history is a family history of kidney disease because a lot of these things have genetic components, as you'll see. And, and again, it'll depend on the specific one because certain glomerulonephritis is genetic and others are not. Um, yeah. So what would I do after history, Scott? So if you're a reasonable doctor, you'd probably do an examination. Mm. Yeah. So um, the really key thing to check here is the blood pressure. Yeah. In all renal disease, blood pressure is key and fluid assessment is key. So are they overloaded? Look at the JVP, listen to their lungs, look for peripheral edema. And that'll give you an idea about whether they've got big proteinuria or not and whether their kidneys are um, properly getting rid of fluid. Uh, mm-hmm. what, should, what should their kidneys feel like on examination, Mr. BPT man? You should not be able to feel their kidneys on exam if they if they have normal kidneys. Um, so if you can feel kidneys, you've got a problem, um, but you should be a lot for them. And then there's some. you can just look at their joints to see if they've got obvious, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and, and look at their skin to see if there's any obvious rash. So next we come to the urine, which is really the physical exam for nephrologists. They love the golden stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sweet, sweet liquor. Yeah. of the gods. <laughs> Ambrosia. What are the uh, what are the things you can look at, or the key things on urine, Scott? So the really key things. So apart from the blood that we've already talked about, and the um, and uh, also looking for red blood cell casts and dysmorphic red cells in that urine sample, you're also looking for really protein. So you're looking for the protein creatinine ratio, or the um, urea albumin creatinine ratio. Mm. Yeah, so the, the gold standard is a 24-hour urine collection, which you then calculate the amount of protein on there. But that's obviously a huge pain for people to do. So you can use a protein spot protein creatinine ratio, which approximates roughly the 24-hour urine protein. And it depends on what units you're using, but essentially it's pretty easy to work out one from the other. Um, but if you are concerned, you know, you've got someone and you're like, this person shouldn't have protein urea, nothing else fits, mm. and sometimes you do a 24-hour urine protein to validate it. And that's the concept of the urea albumin creatinine ratio, Same right? Same thing. Like Same rather thing. than collecting all the urine, you're just looking at the ratio of the urea to try and work yeah. out, creatinine to try and cheat yeah. and make it easier than collecting all the urine mm. all day. In, in pretty heavy EG, and some people ask, well, do I use the protein creatinine ratio or do I use the albumin creatinine ratio? Albumin creatinine ratio is just a really sensitive markers for like, basically it was done for the start of diabetes to work out when they were starting to get some nephropathy. Once someone has a good going glomerulonephritis, it's all about the protein, total protein to creatinine ratio. Mm, and that's that number. all the studies were done using that number, not mm. albumin. And you're kind of trying to treat that number, bring it down. Exactly. Uh, so then there's bloods. You've done the urine and the bloods. What blood would you think of ordering first? I'd probably consider a creatinine. Mm, that's wasteful use of resources there, Scott. <laughs> I'd skip the potassium. That's obviously not important if they've got kidney disease. So UEC is vital. Uh, and then everything else depends on what you're looking at. Now, there is this idea of a GM screen. Someone comes in with AKI and the renal reg. Uh, you know, having been a renal reg, it's just a way to sort of delay having to see the patient for a couple of days um, as many tests as possible yeah, yeah. oh we haven't seen that Flow electron microscopy come back i can't see them until they've got that so you know sometimes on the gn screen if someone tells you about that it's really talking about a crp an esr an autoimmune screen so what would be an autoimmune screen scott so mainly your ana your um, ena anchor um and some of your specific lupus and rheumatoid tests like rheumatoid factor double stranded dna yeah and other bloods, C3, C4. infective stuff, HIV, Hep B, Hep C, that'll be on there. 
and then there's some specific stuff for good pasture syndrome, anti-glomerular basement membrane. But it really, mm. you know, you the will serum. get asked to order this GN screen sometimes. It really depends on what you what you're thinking of. Yeah, serum protein electrophoresis. Ah, yeah. One of my so, nephrologists said anyone who presents with an AKI or proteinuria mm. over the age of 50 needs to have an SPEP, and that's mm. for multiple myeloma because it is a fairly common cause of of renal disease. So, on an easier tack, uh, imaging is actually quite simple. There are some advanced imaging structures you can do, but really, most of the time, people just get a renal ultrasound, and that's just to check that the kidneys don't look abnormal and that there's obviously no blockage further down because that can cause an AKI. Yeah, because what should the kidneys normally look like in GN? In GN, well, if they've got a chronic GN, they would be shrunken and scarred, and they lose what's called corticomedullary differentiation. Um, and in acute GN, uh, normal. Yeah, yeah, that's the key sign. You're just checking for anything that you didn't expect. Yeah. So then there's the ultimate investigation per nephrologist, and what's that, Scott? The biopsy, the tissue. The holy biopsy. And how do you do that? And when do you do that? More how? Well, yeah. just get a needle, yeah. strong arm. <laughs> it is go. literally just, you know, for interest's sake, it's just a long needle. You do it on the ward. You get them to lie face down. It's very, mm, yes. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so go on. <laughs> uh, you get them to lie face down. You take this big, long needle and you poke it into their back and you press a little button. It's got a spring-loaded thing on it and it just takes out a little bit of kidney. You take it, you do this under ultrasound these days. Because uh, I think people have These taken days, a bit not of back in uh, <laughs> the old days. Like in the old, old times. Yeah. <laughs> back um, in the village. Just open, open cutout of the renal biopsy. Um, Set a few dogs on the person. And <laughs> see what they bring see up. What comes up. We didn't get any kidney, but we got some liver. <laughs> uh, so it's a relatively low risk procedure. Bleeding is probably the biggest problem. Um, and it's the m- most common reasons to do it are because someone has really high protein urea or they've got unexplained renal failure, or they, in some cases, have an acute nephrotic syndrome. So one of those rapidly progressive GNs where you have days to make the diagnosis and work out what's going on to save the person from dialysis. Yeah, so basically, if, if, you're, pretty, if you're pretty sure of what's going on, you, you often don't do a renal biopsy. It's when you've got these kind of clinical questions around what's actually going on. Is this some other form of renal disease, you know, hypertensive renal disease, or, you know, is it one of the GNs that would benefit from therapy? And if you're not sure, that's when you do it. That's right. And some of them, the what you see on the biopsy influences the type of therapy you give. I think lupus is probably the most obvious cause. But So even then, you might know it's lupus nephritis, but you actually want the biopsy to see what type of treatment you should give, depending on how bad it is. So lastly, from the general part, let's talk about the general treatment of any sort of glomerular nephritis. And it's actually probably all renal disease it kind of just falls into. There's nice general principles you do for everyone. So tell me about them, Scott. Yeah, so later we'll talk about who needs specific treatment for the genes, but everyone with any kind of renal disease, these are what you want to think about. You want to think about lowering the glomerular filtration rate with ACE inhibitors and, and ARBs to prevent deterioration. You want to think about secondary um, damage control, whether that's um, better controlling their blood sugars if they're diabetic, controlling their, their hypertension, smoking cessation. Um, anything else, Raul? Yeah, so fluid and salt management is really important, especially if their GFR is starting to drop. You don't want them to retain too much fluid or too much salt. Remember, fluid follows salt. So you salt restrict them and you there's, you fluid restrict them, sometimes 1.5 liters per day, depending on what you're dealing with. How much salt? I think it's less than three grams per day is the latest guidelines, but I think that does change a little bit. Maybe worth mm-hmm. looking that up. Um, and then there's other dietary requirements. And this is really when you're pushing towards that near end-stage renal failure. And that's thinking about things like phosphate and potassium. And I won't go too much into that, but there are specific foods and handouts from the Kidney Foundation Australia, which will tell you for dialysis patients and near end-stage renal failure patients what they need to alter in their diet to avoid those things. Cola 
cola nut is extremely high in phosphate. That's the one thing. Oh, that so all the soft drinks with. full of cola nuts. Well, they're more yeah, organic. Just, they're higher in... Yeah, maybe yeah. more cola nut, more phosphate. I don't know. It's, you can have all the lemonade you want. It's just the cola. You cannot have Coca-Cola. There you Interesting. Go. Phosphate. Nuts wow. as well. But anyway. Switch into a Schweppes diet. <laughs> that's the general treatment and general principles behind... Uh, glomerulonephritis and now we're going to take a quick musical interlude before we proceed with some specific nephrotic syndromes and some cases it's a long one baby so stick in there Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. I know Scott certainly did. We had there was some big dancing in the studio yeah. over here. This but, very professional studio we've got. Yeah, Scott's a bit of snickering. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> giggling. So giggling. Uh, if you like that, jump on the Facebook page or iTunes and tell us about how much you liked it. If you don't like it, please don't prefer a self-fragile ego. So I will, uh, Scott will definitely be crying for a couple of weeks after this one. Yeah, Tava and Beck have been really against the musical interlude yeah, for a long time. Yeah, so we need yeah. you. We need supportive messages. Yeah, we need kind right. of evidence that it works. We're not here to stop us from doing this one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's move on to some cases and some nephrotic syndrome. So case one. Billy is a 12-year-old boy, Scott, who comes in after complaining to his mother that his urine looks soapy. His mother also noted that he's been gaining a lot of what she calls water weight, and he's been teased for this at his weekly ballet classes. Specifically the water weight, not the ballet. No, no. <laughs> okay. they're very big on the ballet, the ballet classes. Well, those Billies, they love it. Mm. All of them. Elliot's, yeah. whoever it is. Uh, so Billy's urine shows an equivalent of five grams of protein every 24 hours, but he hasn't got any blood in there. And you do on exam note that he's very edematous. His serum creatinine is normal, and a renal tract ultrasound shows normal appearing kidneys as well. What do you reckon Billy might have, Scotty boy? So even with just the first stem of a 12-year-old child, you're thinking minimal change disease. Yeah. Super common. Nice and easy. So minimal change disease is a nephrotic syndrome. It's largely a disease of children and very rarely can happen in adults. And why is it called minimal change disease, Scott? It's called minimal change disease because when you look at the kidneys under a light microscope, you can't actually see anything. So there's minimal change. And that was invented before the electron microscope was invented and they saw that you had all this defacement of the potocytes. Yeah. So actually on defacement, I think it's effacement. Oh, I like, sorry. I like that idea of defacement more. <laughs> Someone's defaced these potocytes. It's a powerful word, yeah. defacement. <laughs> yeah. So before the electron microscope was invented, they were like, well, there's just nothing wrong with these kidneys, but they've got this severe disease. And I'm like, oh, wait, no, there's, there's a lot wrong with these kidneys. There's something wrong with their microscopes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the pathophysiology of minimal change disease is, as Scott said, effacement of the potocyte foot processes. So that's that third filtration layer there. And it's not totally understood why it occurs. There's some gene mutations associated with it, um, but it's still not totally understood. But the important thing is the clinical features are... What do you reckon the clinical features are, Scott? Given so that it's a classic about? nephrotic syndrome. Mm. So you're getting tons and tons of protein in your, urea, in your urine, usually over 3.5 grams per day. You get, And secondary to that, you're getting a hypoalbuminemia. So low albumin in the blood, so then you're getting all this secondary edema and this secondary hyperlipidemia. Remember that albumin is the main one of the main proteins in bloods hence why you get hypoalbuminemia for those of you who weren't paying attention in the uh, biochem classes so diagnostically your urine mcs is what they call 
bland in that it doesn't have hematuria. Mm. You'll um, see that word a lot. Bland they like urine. to use it, blands. Blands means no blood. But you've got some big dog proteinuria. And uh, as we said, the light microscopy of a renal biopsy is normal. Um, but the electron microscopy shows that podocyte problem. And so what do you are these kids deemed to suffer on dialysis for the rest of their lives, Scott? No, you treat them with steroids and almost most of them get better. Yep. 90% of them will get better within eight weeks, two months. But uh, relapse occurs very commonly. And the 70 to 75% will have a relapse after their first remission. But eventually, a lot of them do go into permanent relapse. But you do have to keep an eye on these guys for the rest of their lives. And there are some more advanced therapies. I don't think we'll talk about them here, but calcineurin inhibitors for those BBTs who are listening. So cyclosporin, tacrolimus, they're kind of a second line. Okay, case number two. So you got Marlene, 46-year-old patient of yours. You've been treating Marlene for acne for years, and she comes in now complaining of swollen ankles and fatigue. You think Marlene's just being her usual self-conscious self, but you notice that she's got significant edema on exam as well. And you'll notice a theme here. (laughs) Everyone's presenting with edema. Um, But you also ordered some screening lipids on Marlene, given she's 46 and getting into her twilight years. And uh, Autumn years, Raul. Let's let's be politically correct here. Autumn years, not twilight years. What's wrong with twilight? Twilight's when you're dying. The light's setting up. Twilight's like your 110s, right? That's that's what we both expect to live. She's got glomerulin and fries. Especially listening to you as a doctor. (laughs) 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 Okay. Um, (laughs) So her lipids are out of whack. She's got a high cholesterol, high triglycerides. And uh, you examine her, very unorthodox, and her blood pressure is normal. Her urine shows some red cells, scant red cells, the glomerular in origin, and an equivalent of five grams of urine every day, every 24 hours. So you do some blood tests because you're pretty good, and you notice a serum antiphospholipase A2R, PLA2R, PLA2R antibodies are positive. And she's mm. also got normal appearing kidneys on ultrasound. MCQ lands. Yeah, you feeling that yeah. MCQ vibe? Just <laughs> reverberating through this room like that Spanish ballad we just played here? Yeah. What's the answer, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> Membranous oh. glomerulonephropathy. That's so the answer. Membranous GN. This accounts for one-fifth of all nephrotic syndrome in adults. And who gets it, Scott? Um, usually middle-aged people. Yeah, so 30 to 60-year-old. There's a bit of a female predominance probably. So the golden years, years, some would say. Yeah. <laughs> In yeah. the old twilight years. Membranous glomerulonephropathy. Yeah. Yep. So the pathophysiology is it's autoimmune, uh, and there are antibodies against the podocytes again, so podocytes are being destroyed. And there's a primary and a secondary form. So the primary form is sort of just happens spontaneously, and it is strongly associated with those phospholipase A2R antibodies so it's pla2r antibodies so if you see them on serum you can be almost certain you're dealing with primary membranous gm but tell us about the secondary form scott so the secondary form you can't find a specific antibody in the serum but it can be associated particularly with malignancy other autoimmune disease or some infections like um, hepatitis b or syphilis so you might want to do a bit of a secondary screen yeah. if you've got a case of membranous glomerulonephropathy with a pla2r negative Yep. So age-appropriate cancer screening, so you know breast cancer screening, uh, colon screening, uh, colon cancer screening, and then just doing a quick check for some of those other infections to make sure there's nothing driving this membranous glomerulonephropathy. And the clinical features, um, I bet you can't guess what these clinical features are, Scott. I yeah, bet you so can't. <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, lots of proteinuria, more than 3.5 grams per day. Um, and nephrotic syndrome, edema, hyperlipidemia, but not too much blood and um, normal or mildly reduced GFR. Yep. And then, again, you're looking for those past history things. Have they had cancer in the past? Do they have any of those infections? Have they been using any drugs or toxins? So in terms of the urine, 
I guess you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to tell me what's in this urine, Scott. I know yeah. it, man. It's gonna be so too tricky. Lots of protein, microscopic hematuria. Let's move on. The biopsy. <laughs> what does the well, biopsy and, show? And also the serum anti PLA two R antibodies. So always order those. Uh, and then your biopsy, it's got a characteristic. This is one of those MCQ. This is membranous is a great MCQ. GN, um, all of this, just MCQ yeah. gold. So the biopsy. Horribly boring. But, horribly boring. Yeah. Horribly boring. But yeah. sub epithelial spikes on silver staining. That's um, that's the biopsy appearance of membranous GN. And you just remember that. Mm. I just think spikes, membranous GN. I don't know how I remember that. but Spikes, just, membrane spikes. Membrane spikes. Sub epithelial spikes mm. on silver staining. SSS. Run yes. that around in your head when you're kind of dreaming. Yep. So treatment and prognosis, Scott. Yeah, this is another rule of thirds disease. Tell so me rule of thirds. So one third of complete remission, one third of partial remission, and one third of membranous glomerulonephropathy have persistent disease. And in most of these people who present... The first six months, you just watch them and see what happens. Because one-third get better, you don't want to give them all these hardcore drugs. You just watch them. You do a bit of that standard stuff we are talking about, blood pressure control, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and see what happens. Yeah. So just to kind of rehash that over, so membranous glomerulonephropathy can be primary or secondary, primary associated with the PLA2R antibody. It's got a nephrotic syndrome. And um, you often observe, because, but you've got to watch them over time because they may need um, significant immunosuppression if they don't go into remission. And for those of you who are probably more in the BPT range, that immunosuppression is what's called the Ponticelli regime, and it's steroids and cyclophosphamide for about six months. Um, one thing that's kind of specific for this and is also a little bit interesting, I think, just as a side note, is that with membranous glomerulonephropathy, they actually get rid of a lot of, because they're getting rid of proteins, they get rid of a lot of their clotting factors. And if their albumin goes less than 20, there's pretty good evidence to suggest that you should anticoagulate them because they had a high risk of getting a DVT. Case three. So Frank is a 54-year-old diabetic man who's hopeless with his blood sugars. He's recently had laser surgery performed on his eyes because of proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And while you're performing a usual screening test for Frank's diabetes, you notice that his urine protein is higher than a Rastafarian on Emperor Selassie's birthday. I hope, I hope you enjoyed that. I spent... We spent a lot of time writing that joke. <laughs> you better be chuckling at home. You better be chuckling. Yeah, thanks, Raul. That's a nice contribution. So diabetic nephropathy. Now, it's not always a nephrotic syndrome, but it can be a nephrotic syndrome. Diabetes can cause all sorts of renal disease, uh, and it's actually the most common cause of chronic renal failure. So risk factors for the nephrotic syndrome associated with diabetic nephropathy are smoking, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and family history. Yeah, having a family history of a diabetic nephrotic syndrome. So the pathophysiology is pretty interesting here. Within one to two years of your diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, you start to get changes in your nephrons. Um, And it basically begins with, really interestingly, hyperfiltration. So it starts with an increase in your GFR. And that's uh, it's a complicated process, but essentially hyperglycemia, high levels of sugar, just directly make all of your mesangial matrix and your vascular walls thickened and scarred. It just thickens everything up. Um, and for a number of reasons, that causes hyperfiltration. Hmm. So what are the clinical features here, Scott? So it's obviously associated with poor blood sugar control in diabetes. And usually it's um, diabetes in terms of the microvascular disease, so the retinopathy and the neuropathy, is kind of a, a dose-dependent side effect. So often they'll, be, they'll correlate really well. If you've got the um, diabetic nephropathy, you're likely to have retinopathy and potentially neuropathy as well. Yeah, so that was a pearl I got from one of my consultants. If you've got someone who's got severe, almost end-stage renal failure and you're attributing it to diabetes, but their eyes are almost normal or their nerves are almost normal, you've got to be suspicious that there's something else going on. Mm. And then diagnostically, Scott? Um, So um, diabetic nephropathy, it's nephrotic syndrome, protein in the urine. um, And and the really key test on... um, 
on staining is the Kimmelstein-Wilson nodules. Yeah. staining. So you get periodic acid shift staining, which don't worry about that, but there are these specific things called Kimmelstein-Wilson nodules, but they're only sometimes seen. If you see them, you know you've got diabetic nephropathy. But um, mostly you're just going to see, like what we talked about before, a thickened glomerular basement membrane, expansion of the mesangium, sclerosis of the capillaries, so just thick and scarred stuff everywhere from diabetic damage. And what's the treatment and prognosis of diabetic nephropathy, Scott? So primarily um, control of blood sugar and blood uh, and blood pressure. Yeah, that's it. And then the, the traditional stuff, so inhibiting the RAS system. So ACE inhibitors are really good in diabetic nephrop- uh, nephropathy. And there's actually, this is breaking news, it's actually 2016, but um, there's a empagliflozin, which is one of the SGLT2 inhibitors, new diabetic drugs. There's a big, big study showing that it decreases your chance of dialysis and delays the progression of your kidney disease. So it's a pretty important drug to have on board if someone's got diabetic nephropathy. Case number four. Case four. Scott. (laughs) Jenny is a 73-year-old previously healthy lady who comes to your clinic complaining of fatigue. Her hemoglobin is 75. You note that she has a white cell count of 70 with a predominant lymphocytosis. She's also recently complained of loss of sensation to her feet. Flow cytometry confirms the diagnosis of chronic lymphocytic leukemia with, on film, smear cells. Smear cells. Schmear. That's another MCQ gold. Smear cells, cells, CLL. Mm. And in a CT chest abdo pelvis, a comment is made that her kidneys are extremely large. Mm. What are you thinking That's, about? Yeah, that is a tricky one. So there are a lot of causes of large kidneys, but in this context, I'm thinking amyloidosis. Mm, deposition disease. You've got the peripheral neuropathy. You've got the big kidneys. You've got the renal failure. Yep. You've got, you got the hematological malignancy. Mm. So amyloidosis is where you get these protein fragments called amyloid depositing in your tissues all over the body. And it can affect many organs, which is why Jenny had that. Was that her name? Probably. Um, well, she had peripheral neuropathy. <laughs> you know, it affects your Eighty-four-year-old lady probably names Jenny. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it can deposit in your heart, in your skin, your tongue. And so there's a couple of things we'll talk about on clinical features. But pathophysiology-wise, how do you think about amyloid, Scott? So amyloidosis is this process of aggregation of all these soluble amyloid proteins, which have all these secondary negative effects, like you know the neuropathies and the kidney damage and the heart damage and things. But it's... Um, linked into two different syndromes. So you've got the AL, light chain amyloid, which is this primary hematological process. And you've got AA amyloid, um, which is inflammatory or um, age-related or secondary to other causes. Mm. There's actually 23 different types of amyloid, Scott. I like this. Oh. I'm just I'm pantsing you in front of everyone on the... Ooh, uh, yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> it. But, it, it but those are the two main ones. The two that Scott knows. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a good starting point. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Um, then you can progress. You can um, evolve to Raul yeah, when you get yeah. your moonstone. <laughs> <laughs> Sneaky little Pokemon reference in there. Yeah. Um, so it presents as a nephrotic syndrome as all the previous ones, but they may also... You need to check for an underlying hematological malignancy, so swellings, lumps, bumps, that sort of thing and a background of poorly controlled inflammatory disease like rheumatoid arthritis that's gone wild, gone bonkers. Uh, And then there's a couple of things that are associated with amyloid. Again, BPT-type people, this is where you're going to be at. So waxy skin, neuropathies, easy bruising, a big tongue. So glosso... uh, What's it called? Mm. Glossomegaly? Glosso... Glossitis. Macroglossia. Macroglossia. Macroglossia, yeah, that's the one. Uh, And then diagnostically, on the renal ultrasound, as, as we saw in Jenny... The kidneys are large uh, because mm. they've got all this amyloid in them bilaterally. And then you can do all the stuff to work up for a hematological malignancy, which we won't go into too much right now, but probably includes a serum protein electrophoresis, a flow cytometry, an FBE. Blood film, bone marrow. Tell me yep. about tell me about the uh, renal biopsy there, Scotto. Yeah, Big so... Scott. <laughs> Big S. 
Big S. So um, renal biopsy, there's a key finding. You do the Congo red stain and you get apple green birefringence. For those of you who are at the glorious Monash University, they love, or at least years <laughs> love ago, apples, they, loved, yeah, they loved the Congo red apples. Yeah. Um, so think about that. And then treatment prognosis is just treating the underlying malignancy or inflammatory disorder. Otherwise, it's just general stuff. Yep. So just to revise that, so amyloidosis, big cause of um, kidney disease, can cause a nephrotic syndrome. You've got your AL, AL for light chain, which is the primary amyloidosis, AA, which is secondary to other things. And um, Congo red stain, apple green, birefringence. Remember that word. Don't worry about what it means. Mm. And that applies to amyloidosis anyway. If you see Congo red with apple green birefringence, amyloid is the answer on that question. So case number five, Margaret, 35-year-old severely obese lady who you've had trouble getting onto a public bariatric surgery list. She's also suffering from some hypertension, which is poorly controlled. And her usual lipid panel is... Uh, I'm not going to say what I had written there because I'm not a big fan of it. But her lipid panel is abnormal. <laughs> lipid panel abnormal. is abnormal. Great. Um, that's Great exactly job. what it said. That's what it said there. <laughs> so this is what, Scott? Obese lady. She's got nephrotic syndrome, hypertension. Well, it's a bit... I think it's a bit nonspecific. Very but so. um, uh, I think in this, it could be... We haven't talked about FSGS yet. Focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Now I've got a bone probably the to most confusing every of all the neurologists yeah. on the face of the planet about this disease. Very badly named. Yeah. So FSGS or focal segmental glomerulosclerosis is both a description of what you see under a biopsy. So you know, focally, there's segments of sclerosis scarring. Ah, yep. yes. To explain yep. that a little Thickening. bit more, yep. focal means is versus diffuse, which is yep. where it only affects some glomeruli. And segmental is opposed to global, where it affects only part of the glomeruli. So mm. it's ex- ex- affecting some parts of some of the glomeruli. You can actually say glomeruli. I've yeah. <laughs> a lot of practice. I'm impressed. Um, so this is why I get angry, because that is the pathological description. But it's also a primary disease called focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. But it's also a secondary endpoint of other diseases, where you, like HIV or obesity and hypertension, where you end up with a disease called focal segmental glomerulosclerosis that has focal segmental glomerulosclerosis on biopsy. Incredibly mm-hmm. infuriating for anyone trying to learn that. But I hopefully you understand that. For us, we're looking at either the primary or secondary form of FSGS, which looks like FSGS under a microscope. So primary form is this nephrotic syndrome, and secondary form is this endpoint, which can, has all these different causes, including mm. a lot of different causes of kidney damage. Yep. Yep. It is also a podocytopathy. So we've also got a problem with those foot processes here, which is mm. a common theme in these nephrotic syndromes. Not though. doing their job, letting all the protein through. Filtering everything through. Bad bounces. That's how you think of them. Mm. Bad bounces. Um, they're letting people like me into your <laughs> Bad so, decision. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, in terms of the clinical features, it's associated with a pretty acute onset uh, nephrotic syndrome if it's primary, but if it's a secondary to some of those other things, it presents a bit more slowly. And that's probably the main thing to know clinical feature-wise. Diagnostically, Scott? And I guess the only other kind of... This is one of those things that doesn't fit really well into the... I'm not going to answer your question. (laughs) I'm just going to answer your question with an unrelated comment. But... um, this is one of those FSGS also doesn't fit as well into this nephrotic nephritic kind of binary system. It's kind mm. of you know, it's, more it's non-binary. <laughs> <laughs> it's the non-binary. This is where we're gonna get me too later in the future. Idea. <laughs> um, oh, why not? There's nothing wrong with being non-binary. I know. What, but do, it just what, sounds do, you, what like do you say? I, what are you saying? I'm not. What, what are you implying, Rob? What are you coming at me? It's gonna yeah. Work. Later me. on, this is not gonna look good for us. They're gonna re-edit this podcast <laughs> and you be like, I hate non-binary people. <laughs> My name is Scott. <laughs> So 
as we said, it's, it's this predominant kind of nephrotic syndrome, but you can also often get a hematuria and an elevated creatinine, is all I was going to say. Okay. Before you derailed us at 40, what are we on? 47 minutes. Exactly and, and you're still just you mucking around. What is this? <laughs> this is the Rahul show, baby. Um, so. <laughs> so ultimately for FSGS, you need a biopsy, which shows... FSGS, yeah, it's great. Focal um, segmental glomerulosclerosis. But there's a risk of sampling error. So since it's focal, only affects some glomeruli. If you take a bunch of glomeruli that aren't affected, you might get something that doesn't show any changes, even though you're dealing with FSGS. Also, your biopsy doesn't help you tell the difference between whether it's primary versus secondary. That's just a clinical assessment. And your treatment is with immunosuppression. So, you know, you start with steroids, as with most things, and then later on you can progress to other stuff. Unfortunately, this is one of those conditions that if it's primary, will relapse. If you transplant their kidneys, it's going to relapse. Um, you know, pretty a pretty high rate of relapse in the kidneys. But if it's secondary, you just treat the underlying condition: obesity, hypertension, whatever it is, HIV, and you know, the you hope that the FSGS gets better. So just to rehash: so FSGS, focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, the really confusing one, a bit non-binary. It's nephrotic, but can have more of a nephritic feature with some. Um, blood it can be this primary process this kind of inflammatory process or it can be secondary to other diseases as an endpoint of what you see when you look at it on biopsy and um, the key histological finding is the name so focal segmental glomerulosclerosis all right well you did it congratulations to you i mean look everyone wanted this gn podcast so i kind of blame you guys because it was always going to be difficult but we we managed to put one together I hope it kind of makes sense and maybe demystifies some of this stuff. I reckon it's one of those podcasts that you listen to three or four times. I mean, <laughs> I know there's a lot of them in the Conversations Library, but uh, I reckon it is one of those because it's going to, you'll have to, maybe sometimes the end bit will only make sense once you listen to the start bit again and, and you know, mm. that sort of stuff. So, so we made the jokes particularly lame on account of that. Yeah, you, knowing that you, you have, have to, to listen, listen to again to and again. Suffer for this podcast. Yeah. Uh, I think that's it. Uh, if Let's, oh, musical, musical outro. outro. I, I think we should have a musical outro. Okay, we're going to yeah. do that. Right. <laughs> See you later, guys. Take it out.